Hey guys, welcome to the C1 Church Podcast. I pray that this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you go after Jesus. If you'd like more information about C1 Church, please go to our website at c1.church. Enjoy the message and be blessed. You know, there's some companies out there that that specialize in like veggie burgers and stuff, and they're bragging about how they can make vegetables taste like meat. Cows have been doing that forever. <laughs> if God meant for us to be vegetarians, he would have made broccoli more fun to shoot at. Oh, come on, Ryan. Like, what do you call someone who has no body and no nose? Nobody knows. Oh, come on. That's awful. It hurts, yeah. Well, I'll tell you one more joke, and then we'll get into it, simply because I'm a pastor, and this is a pastor joke. This family invited the pastor over for dinner. And um, the pastor and his family over for dinner, and as they were eating everything, food was great, and... Um, they started cleaning up, and the, and, and the wife said, hey, um, you, guys, just, just leave your food where it's there. Just, you know, leave your, your table or plate and silverware right where it's at. I'll clean up afterwards, and so they, they could fellowship and everything like that. And so she started cleaning up, and she got to where the pastor was sitting. She noticed a spoon was gone. And she, she looked at her husband. She goes, I really think pastor took our spoon. <laughs> and... For like a year, it bothered her. Like, she, cause she got out the the nice cutlery, you know, the stuff you only use for the Pope, and and uh, you know, cause you know, when 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 they're really close friends, you get paper plates out. But I mean, if if you want to know how close you are to someone, how nice of dishes are you eating on? You know, if if you're, if they're plastic and all that, um, you're you're friends. If it's paper plates, you're practically family. <laughs> but. Um, so she was, uh, she was cleaning and a year later, she, they like some time went by, like a year went by and they had the pastor and his family back over and they were just talking, having a good time. And she finally asked, pastor, I got to ask you, did you really take my spoon last year? She's like, I've been looking for it this whole time. I can't find it. I looked everywhere, and we don't have a dog. Did one of your kids take it? Like, it's just been bothering me. She's like, I don't care personally. She's like, of course I didn't take it. I put it in your Bible. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Wow. Yeah. Ouch. Oh. Why, would, why would you say that joke, Pastor? Well, because I, I did. <laughs> yeah, open your Bibles and you might find a spoon. Oh, man. Let's keep going. Okay, today we're going to look at a, some lessons from biblical fatherhood. And I want us to understand that every father, whether it be a great dad um, just nails everything about fatherhood or a um, deadbeat dad is but a poor reflection of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is so much better than we could ever, ever imagine. And there's lessons about fatherhood, and, and there's a mantle to fatherhood. There is. Fathers, you play a role. I don't care what society says. I don't care if they're trying to break down and make the dad look like the big bumbling oaf. Some of us live up to that. But we have a weight in our home. We have a, we have a, we have a responsibility in marriage. There is an anointing on fatherhood that no other person can carry. And I will say this, though, that just because these are lessons from biblical fatherhood, if you are... If you are a single mom, these lessons apply to you. If you are not married, these lessons apply to you. If 
if you are a single dad, these lessons apply to you. These, these biblical truths apply to everyone, but they, they especially apply to fathers because of the weight and the anointing of the calling of fatherhood. And, and I know we don't talk about this, and some people have a father wound. And, and, and even in dealing with our relationship with our father, we are okay with Jesus, but sometimes we have a hard time with the father. But Jesus' whole responsibility and calling while he was on earth was to bring us to the father. He restored a relationship to the father. And some of us, we pray to Jesus, which there's nothing wrong with that. I, we, but, but technically we pray to the father. We should be praying to the father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and as a father, as our heavenly father re- reached to us through Jesus to restore relationship to him. We have a relationship with Jesus. The relationship with Jesus is that he's our older brother. That really is. We're co-heirs with Christ. He's the firstborn among the dead. He's, a, he, he's the first one to come back to life. He's the first one to conquer death. He's our older brother, though. Our father is his father. And, and so I want to talk to you about lessons of biblical fatherhood. And I'm going to talk to you about a father. I'm not talking about the heavenly father today. I want to talk to you about a, a father named David out of the Old Testament. And I got to tell you, if you read David's story in 1 Samuel, you would think, man, this is a man of God. This guy, he, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And, and he was but you think, wow, David killed it in 1 Samuel. Not only did he kill Goliath, but man, he just killed life. He was humble. He served. Man, you would think that David just could not do anything wrong in 1 Samuel. Then you get to 2 Samuel and you're like, oh, David, come on. You are, your life is a wreck in 2 Samuel. You're making bad decision upon bad decision in 2 Samuel. You would think that he could walk on water in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, he's like, this is a man after God's own heart? Like, what? <laughs> so, every person at a point in their life, they're going to serve as a horrible warning or a great example. And David, we get to see him do both in what we're going to read today. So, some of these principles are from what David should have done, and some of these principles are from what he did do. But we're going to start in 2 Samuel 11.1. And and I want to read this one scripture. Because out of this one scripture, out of this one decision that David made, everything spiraled. Everything spiraled from one decision. So let's read it. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army... To fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So, when kings go out to war, when kings normally go out to war, so that's that's when that who's the king? David. What is he supposed to do? Go to war. The favor of God was on David. You could clearly see that because he sent Joab, the, the general, and the army, and they just destroyed the enemy. So God's favor was still on them, but David stayed when he should have gone. David lingered when his calling was to lead the army as a king. And I don't know what, what made David think. Maybe he's like, well, I'm just going to take a vacation I'm going to stretch my legs a little. I'm going to relax. I don't want to. Maybe I've achieved enough. Maybe I've earned it. Like sometimes I think that we get to the point in our relationship where, God, I haven't fallen into temptation in a long time. Well, I've kind of earned this, right? Like we we kind of get that way with God. And and no, you you don't earn anything. Everything from God is a free gift. And, And David's calling was to lead the army. It wasn't to stay in Jerusalem as if everything there was his. He was king, but God was the one who gave it all to him. The kingdom to him, the city to him, the palace to him. But 
We're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 25. And in between this, what happened? I'm going to tell it real quick. When David was at home, when the army was away, he gets up. And he walks out on his roof. And he sees a woman bathing. And he says, that's a good looking woman. I think I'll have her over for dinner. And he had her over for dinner and romanced her. And he had an affair with her. What's interesting is he asked it. He's like, hey, who is that? And they said, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now, Uriah was one of David's bodyguards, personal bodyguards. They were friends. Uriah was one of the mighty men of, of David. He was close to David at all times. And David, because he was out of place, betrayed Uriah's friendship. He had an affair with Uriah's wife, got her pregnant, and because he got her pregnant, he thought, you know what, I'm going to get away with this. He found out she was pregnant, and then Bathsheba, which is the woman's name, said, I'm pregnant, and he thought, well, snap. Uriah is uh, at war. <laughs> How do we explain this? So he brought Uriah back. He tried to get Uriah to lay with his wife, and he said, man, um, King David, my, my men can't be with their wives. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor you because I'm supposed to be at war. And he honored David. All the while, David betrayed his friend and sent a letter to Joab that says, send Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is the strongest. And he murdered Uriah. And then he took Bathsheba as his own wife, a man after God's own heart. Heck of a dude. Amazing, amazing father. And he already had kids, David. Like, you know, this child was not his first child. He had a lot of wives. So we're going to jump right in here. It says, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David the story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. Um, it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. David knew what he was hearing was wrong. And, and, and what's so interesting is, I think that when there's sin in our lives, we're, how quick are we to point out sin in other people's lives when that same thing is going on in ours? And, and so... David was mad because he knows it's wrong to do that. He's in agreement. He must repay four lambs to the poor man um, for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Wow. The favor of God was all over David. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give, you, I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. So I'm going to stop there for a second. 
Well, I'll read the next one. You can go to verse 12. You did, you did it secretly. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen openly in the sight of all Israel. So we're not going to get into it, but what happens following this moment is David has a son. He actually has several sons, but he has a son named Absalom, who is the heir to the throne. He is, he's the one that's going to take over, and Absalom has a sister. And then David has another son by another wife. And his second son sees Absalom's sister. And he thinks, wow, she's so beautiful. They're half-sisters. They didn't grow up in Arkansas. I'm, I know, it's weird. But they're from Kentucky. Oh, come on. I'm just joking. I'm joking. Alabama. Stop. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Um, but his second son... Second oldest sees Absalom's sister. And, the, and Absalom's sister is their, their full brother sister. And he says, I, I'm just madly in, lo- in love with her. He was infatuated with her. And he, he wanted her. He wanted her. So they came up with this whole plan and pretended to be sick. And he said, and he begged his father, Dad, just let her take care of me. Um, I won't get better. He was just lovesick. And, and then once she was alone with him, he basically, he raped her. There's no, there's no ands, ifs, buts about it. He raped his own half-sister. And, um, and then once he did that, it says that his love for her turned to hate. He despised her. He's like, get out of my sight. He took her honor away. She, now David couldn't give her in marriage to another person. Even he, She even said, please don't do this to me. If you ask our father, he will gladly Give you my hand, and but but David, or but 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 David's son wouldn't have it. He wanted what he wanted. So Absalom was infuriated. David was enraged. He's like, this is wrong. But David did nothing about it. He didn't address it. So two years go by. Absalom took his sister under into his own house and took care of her. He loved her. He was so enraged. Two years go by, Absalom plots, and he has a big feast, and he invites all his brothers over, and he takes and murders his sister's rapist, his half-brother. David is so mad and torn because he just lost a son. He's hurt. He mourns. He banishes Absalom to his grandfather's kingdom. Then, after, the Bible says, a proper amount of grieving, he he basically forgave Absalom, brought Absalom back into his own kingdom, his own house, because he wanted to reconcile. He forgave Absalom for what he did. Because, quite frankly, Absalom did, he tried to do justice for his sister. Did he handle it right? No. But, David should have handled it. It shouldn't have been Absalom's responsibility to do this. It was David's household. David should have handled it as the father. So Absalom comes back to his father's kingdom. And what he started doing, he, David thought everything was good. I reconciled. I love my son. All the while, Absalom's just getting the hearts of the people, the hearts of the kingdom. And 10 years from his sister being raped to this moment. Absalom takes and drives David out of the kingdom. He takes and um, sleeps with all of David's concubines up on the roof. Like God just said through the prophet, he said, what you did in secret, I will do in public. His own son overthrew the kingdom, ran David out of Jerusalem, and his own advisors betrayed him, and, and his, his house, he had the... Absalom had the whole kingdom against David. And David's on the run. Um, Absalom takes over the, the, the castle, so to speak, sleeps with the concubines on the roof. Now everyone knows Absalom's in charge. And so David musters an army. Absalom musters an army, and they go out to fight. And the Lord was with David. They win, but what did David say? He said, please don't kill the young man Absalom. Don't do it. Because he has a father's heart. He's like, 
I don't care what he's done. He's my son. I don't want him to die. Please. Well, Absalom was very, very handsome. If there's ever a person in the Bible I can't relate with. <sighs> the Bible says Absalom was really handsome, and it says he cut his hair once a year, and when they cut his hair, five pounds of hair came off. Five pounds! Like, but I guess it was, he was about to get a haircut, he was riding his donkey, and he got tangled up in a tree, and Joab's like, let's go kill him. The general, and everyone's like, well, David said not to kill him. Joab's like, I got this. And he runs a spear through the guy's heart. And then they just dump him in a ditch. And then the news goes back to David, and he just cries, Absalom, Absalom, my son. And he mourns his son who, who betrayed him, who tried to take the kingdom from him. He, like, he had this father's heart for his son because he loved him unconditionally. And so we step in here. Um, you didn't secret, I will make it happen openly in the sight of Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die from this sin. Because all sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Let's keep going. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him, get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then, the, then on the seventh day of the the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions or beard balm, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when the child is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. And she became pregnant and then gave birth to a son. And David named that him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent the word through Nathan, the prophet, that they should name him um, Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Dads, you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. We get to set the spiritual climate and culture of our house. And if we don't do it, the enemy will. If there is no dad present, moms, that responsibility falls to you. You get to set the spiritual climate and culture of your house. If you're single or married without children... Husband, that responsibility falls to you. If you're single, that responsibility falls to you. You get to set the climate and culture of your house. Today, I want to talk to you about some things that lessons from biblical fatherhood that will set the climate and spiritual climate and culture of your house. And the first thing that we need to understand the lesson from biblical fatherhood is our choices carry weight. Our choices carry weight. Our words carry weight. David made one decision. One decision. I'm not going out <laughs> this spring with the army. And because he made that one decision, three sons died. One daughter was raped and he was almost robbed of his kingdom, 
and his calling because he made one decision. And that's how, that's how sin works. Is, was it a sin for David to stay in Jerusalem while his army was out? No, it was not a sin. But that's how sin works. Usually Satan won't tempt you to go out and have an affair. He just lays the breadcrumbs until you get to that point. So you compromise on what's not a sin, and you compromise on what's not a sin, you compromise on what's not a sin, and then suddenly it's like, oh, it's just a little lie. And you start compromising on what we would consider little sins, but all sin separates us from the love, not the love of God, but all sin separates us from God, not the love of God. God loves us regardless of our sin. But it separates us from God. It puts on our end a barrier, but God is so passionately removes that barrier. It's, it's like he wasn't there because he's God. But to us, it, it, it hinders our ability to listen and hear God. That's what sin really does to the Christian. When we choose to sin, we, we, we don't hear God clearly. And, but Satan doesn't start with sin. If he would have walked up to David and said, hey, you need to kill Uriah. So you can have his wife. David would have said, no, he's my friend. Absolutely not. Or if Satan would have said, hey, you know what? You need to have an affair with Bathsheba. David would have said, no. I have like 150 wives and several concubines. Why would I do that? He, he would have said, no. But... The enemy made him make a decision that made this decision possible. The enemy put a decision in front of him that made that decision property possible. And and so what I'm getting at is, as a biblical, as a father, we gotta we gotta decide or pre-decide that in in when our kids drive us crazy. Like, I am not going to yell at them. I'm not going to yell. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything stupid to them. Or we, our decisions carry weight, though. Our decisions carry weight. David made one decision, and it robbed him. Our decisions also don't just affect us. They affect everyone around us. And and. And if we, if we make decisions that put us out of place where we need to be, we're actually just making it easier for the enemy to tempt us to sin. David had a decision to make. What should I do? Should I follow my calling and be king with my army, or should I just stay in Jerusalem and let them do all the heavy lifting? Often the decisions that God wants us to make aren't necessarily the easy decisions. Because anytime God puts a calling on our life, it requires us to walk in obedience to that calling, whether it be hard or easy. And this decision to go to war is not an easy decision, but that was a calling that David had. And so if he would have decided, and quite frankly, at that point in his life, he probably didn't have to fight all that much. He sent his army out to fight. He just at headquarters but he didn't want to do it. And so often we do the same thing, though. We make decisions here, little decisions here and there, and we don't prioritize the right thing. And, and obviously we don't have a kingdom, we don't have an army, we don't have all that. And so what does it look like today? Well, if, if we are prioritizing husbands and fathers, if you're prioritizing things over your relationship with, with your wife, you are making the wrong decision. It might not be sinful, but if your wife is always taking second to everything else, next to God, she takes second to Jesus, obviously, 100%. You're always going to be second to Jesus. I just want you to know that. But if our wives are taking second to everything, our interest, everything else, we are, we are making the decision, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to do what I want. Or after our wives, our kids... If we're making decisions and, um, and we're, we're prioritizing things over our relationship with our children, obviously there are times like obvi we have to work, 
Like, my kids don't understand when I have meetings to go to. Like, Daddy, you got home. Just got home. I want to play with you. I'm like, I want to play with you too, but I also don't want to be covered in sweat when I walk into this meeting. Like, please come jump on the trampoline with me. I'm like, I, I don't want to jump on a boiling hot pad um, in 100-degree weather. But there are, obviously there's responsibilities, but when we start taking, because and, and choosing to prioritize things over our calling. Because as a father, my, my calling is first to Jesus, then is to my wife, then is to my children, then is to the church. 100% of the time. And if I get that order out of place, when I get that out of order, then I'm, I'm choosing what David did. Because our decisions carry weight. And our children, our children see what we prioritize over them. Our children see that. And it's always sobering. And they'll call you out on it. I love kids because they'll say stuff like, put your phone down. Oh. Like, and they, they get me sometimes because they'll be, they'll be off playing and like by themselves. And it's beautiful when my children play together because they're, they're six and four and they're boy and girl. And when they play together in harmony, it scares me. But it also brings me joy. It almost makes me think of, like, the Tower of Babel. I'm like, should I go in there and break them up? Because <laughs> they're planning something. <laughs> but, but sometimes they'll, like, they'll just stop playing. They'll sneak up on me and scare me. And, like, I might just be, you know, whatever, just scrolling on Facebook. And they'll be like, Daddy, play with me. And I have a decision to make. What's more important, this or them? Well, obviously... This is going to go down because they are more important than this 100% of the time. Do I always make the right decision? No. But when I don't make the right decision, the Lord convicts me because it's wrong. Unless I'm like doing ministry or on a phone call with someone, I try to put my phone down for them because they're my calling. I'm not, I'm not perfect at it. But our decisions carry weight. And, and another big one is... When we don't prioritize what we're doing right now, our children see it. Our, our marriage will suffer. Even, when, even if you're not married and, and, and you're single, when you don't prioritize coming together with the body of Christ and worshiping Jesus, that will carry weight for, for the patterns you set down the road. I can't tell you how many times as a youth pastor I had conversations with parents and their, their kids were acting up and they wanted me to straighten them out in three or four hours, but they wouldn't take them to church at all. Like basketball practice came along. Oh, they're out of church for the next whatever. Well, it's summer, so let's go to the lake every weekend. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff, but when you start prioritizing things where... When we should be, where we should be, it carries weight. Because if you don't make a God a priority in your household, if you don't make worshiping Jesus a priority in your household, imagine what the next generation is going to do with it. And then the generation after that. We're only a couple generations away from being 100% godless. We... Our decisions carry weight. One decision led. If, if, if you would have told David, if you stay in Jerusalem when you should be with the army, you're going to end up murdering one of your good friends. He would have been like, what? I just want to stay. But, but that's literally how the enemy works, to get, just get you slightly out of place. Slightly out of place. If you're flying from L.A. to New York and you're one degree off, guess where you end up? You end up in New Jersey. You don't end up at New York. Just one degree. Because our decisions carry weight. What we prioritize, our children see. Our, our family sees. Our marriage sees. And, and I'm all for sports. I'm all for clubs. I'm all for activities. I'm all for vacations. Um, I think more people should take vacation. Um, they probably don't use up their vacation. They, they probably should, but let that be the exception, not the regular. 
Let the priority be always be Jesus, always be God. What does he want us to do? Not out of obligation, but hey, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to worship God and bring him glory. I'm called to honor my wife. I'm called to honor and, and model Jesus before my children. That's my calling. And, and when I get those mixed up or when I prioritize or whatever, choose something else, Whenever you make a decision, there's always a sacrifice. You make a decision to do this, you're telling so many other things no. When I decided to say yes when Amy finally asked me to marry her, I was saying no to three and a half billion other women. And when she said yes to me, she was saying no to three and a half billion other men. That's a big decision. Because our decisions carry weight. We don't think about it in that terms, but our decisions carry weight. The second thought I want to leave you with really fast, and we're going to go through these. Um, Receive correction in humility and give it in love. David. David was wrong. The prophet Nathan came to the king of Israel probably the most powerful king in Israel's history, the mightiest warrior of a king in Israel's history. And Nathan came to him, and he called him out. And David David could have been like, all right, let's kill this dude. But what did David do? He admitted he was wrong. He's like, no, you're right, I'm wrong. And he humbled himself before the Lord. And, and here's the thing, whenever, unless you're self-righteous and you don't think you sin, whenever God confronts you with your sin, the only proper response is humility and repentance. It really is. What are you going to say to God? Mm, you're wrong. I, it wasn't that bad, God. I mean, like, I'm sure he had a quick death. I mean, God, it was only a one-night stand with, with Bathsheba. No, no, it was wrong. And so David received it in humility. David received it in humility. And, and this, this is hard. We need to have people in our lives, dads, wives, mothers, singles, marrieds. We need, you need people, I need people in my life that can call me on my crap, that can, that can speak truth to me when I'm being stupid. Amy is one of those people and she's so gracious in telling me. But seriously, she, like she has full authority and right to say, Ryan, you are wrong. You're, you're being wrong. Because you don't get to be referee yourself. Because you're always going to side with yourself or you're always going to condemn yourself. You don't get to be a referee. You need a third party. Like David had Nathan. You need a Nathan in your life that can say, I, I see what you're doing and that's wrong. I'm not saying you give that right to any and everyone. But you do need to have people in your life that can, that can speak to you truth. And you need to receive it in humility. You need to receive correction in humility. That's actually a mark of good leadership. And as a husband and as a father, we are the leaders of our house. We are. Everything flows from Jesus, us, our wives, children. That's the order of which God established. And so we, we need to receive correction in humility. David received it and it led to repentance. And then when we give correction, we need to give it in love. This is one area that David didn't do well. He received it well, but David should have took his son aside, his sons aside. Because I can't help but think that his son that raped his daughter probably saw dad have his way with Bathsheba. Like, well, if my dad can see a woman and do whatever he wants, I can too. And David had an opportunity here. And he, he did, but... He didn't, he didn't give discipline well. There is no record of him actually even disciplining his son for raping his, 
half-sister. He didn't. He just got mad about it. But getting mad about something is not discipline. As fathers, when we have to speak correction, we always do so in love. As a husband, as, as whatever. If, if you're talking to a co-worker, if you have to correct them, do it in love. You discipline in love. You punish out of anger. And we're not called to punish anyone. We're not judge, jury, and executioner. We, as fathers and parents, we are called to discipline. And discipline is rooted in love. So you receive correction and humility, and you give it in love. Humbly give it in love. The third thing I want to I talk to you about is pray openly and repent publicly. And I'm not contradicting Jesus when he said, go Go, shut yourself away and pray inside a closet. Jesus was addressing, and, and the, I'm going to get into this, but Jesus was addressing um, people who were praying for show. They would just get out and like pray openly and look, like look at me, look at my awesome prayers. My prayers are so amazing. Like they were drawing attention to themselves. So Jesus was saying, don't be like those hypocrites. David, though, he prayed openly and what I mean is he didn't care who was watching and who wasn't watching because the reality is he had a child who was in trouble and he wanted to go before the Lord on that child's behalf. He was praying like he, that he didn't care who was watching and he didn't care if it made himself look like a fool. He didn't care if he stunk. He didn't care. I'm going to fast and pray before the Lord until maybe God will have mercy. And fathers, that's how we should be praying for our families. Not care whether people are watching. Not care about people's opinion. Man, if you're going to war in your prayer life for your family, who cares? Let your kids see you pray. Let your wife see you pray. I'm not saying go out of your way to do it, but there are times when, when Amy brings stuff to me that I'm like, let's pray right now. I don't, I'm not going to go lock myself in a closet to go pray. I'm going to pray right then and there. There are times when Skye, she's been having trouble with her ears, and she says, Daddy, can you please pray for my ears? I'm like, let's pray right now. And I'll just lay hands on her, and we'll pray. Pray openly. The other day... Um, I had this big knot on my forehead and, um, yeah, it was, I, I, I got a zit. I, I I'm not going to lie. It was gross and it popped up out of nowhere and it was literally, it hurt so bad. This is so gross. I'm so sorry, but it, it ends, it ends the really like pastor. Well, um, yeah, evidently I'm still going through puberty, but it, <laughs> It popped up and I it was it hurt so bad and it was right where my forehead dips from my car accident and so that's kind of a tender spot in my head anyways and it just hurt like really bad and I even told the board I was wearing a hat at the board meeting I said if this thing doesn't go away by Sunday I'm wearing a hat to church because I look I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame you know like had this big old knot on my forehead and um, Saturday it was still there and. Um, I said, well, it looks like I'm wearing a hat tomorrow. This is last Sunday or last Saturday. And Peyton walks by. He's like, Dad, I'll pray with you. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, let's pray. right." He's like, I'll pray right now. I'm like, okay. So I grabbed his hands, and I, get, I got down on my hands and knees. And then this is how he prayed. He, he, both of his hands, he was holding my hands, and then he got down on his face. He got down on his face like this. And I was holding his hands, and all, all I'm hearing is, you know, I'm, I, I can't hear what he's saying. It's just like he's whispering, and then he gets up, and he goes, hey, man. And then I reached up. I said, well, it's still there. And he goes, dad, 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 I prayed for Jesus to take it away tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's so funny, but I, I walked into the kitchen, and I told Ames, I said, mark my words. It's going to be gone tomorrow. And guess what? I woke up in the morning and it was gone. That knot on my forehead. So, um, but pray openly. Know, how, know where he got that is because he sees Amy and I pray. He sees. We pray about everything and then repent publicly. Repent. Husbands, fathers, we are, none of us are above repentance. 
Every one of us needs to repent. David should have brought his children in and set them down and said, what I did was wrong. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. And he should have not only repented before the Lord, he should have repented to his family. So we're, we're good about repenting before the Lord, but when we sin and we sin against people, we need to repent to the people we sinned against. We repent to one another so that we can be healed, James says. And there are times where I have sinned and I've had to, I, I've raised my voice, I've, I've been a fool, and Amy and I have been arguing or whatever, I raised my voice, and I've had to not only repent to her, I've had to take my kids aside and say, listen guys, I'm so sorry, your mom doesn't always know when she's wrong. And no, I'm, 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 I'm joking. No, I've had to pull my kids aside and say, guys, I want you to hear this. Daddy was 100% wrong for how I spoke to mommy. I was wrong. And, I will, and, I, and I, I've even put myself in timeout to let them see there are consequences. Like, you know, like for a minute, I'll stand in the corner. Because Peyton or Sky will go, well, you need to go to timeout. You're like, I do. Because I was wrong. And I will. Because I, I want them to see repentance. And if I've raised my voice or, you know, I've lost my temper, I've taken Sky aside and Peyton aside and say, I am so sorry. I was wrong for how I spoke to you. Like, I've, like I've asked for forgiveness from God. Like, the Holy Spirit's so good about checking us, but we need to pray openly and repent publicly. And then the, the next thing, real quick. We need to reconcile and forgive quickly. David did this well. David reconciled to his children Regardless, I mean, what? dude, I want you to understand, one of his sons raped his daughter, and he reconciled. I would want to kill that person. I would have fell in Absalom's camp. But he reconciled and forgave. One of his sons killed that son. <laughs> And he reconciled and forgave. He reconciled and forgave. There are people in here that need to reconcile with people in their life. And you're holding on to grudges that you've held on for, to for too long. And you need to forgive them. The Bible says unless you forgive, you cannot be forgiven. And, and, and this is a big deal. So we... And to the point where the Bible even says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We get to help people reconcile to God. What does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation is a mathematical term that means put in the right category. So what did David do when he reconciled to his children? He put them in the right category. You're still my sons. You're still my loves. You're still... When God reconciles us, he puts us in the right category. He says, you are my son or my daughter. I love you. It's reconciliation. And he forgives us not, quick, not just quickly, but entirely. We need to reconcile and forgive quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't sit there and let it fester. The longer you go without reconciling and the longer you go without forgiving, it, it, it just festers. It turns. It goes from a splinter to to a boil, to cancer in your soul. It's so bad for you when you sit on, on bitterness and unforgiveness. It, it, it just eats you alive. So we, we have got to model this. And it has to start with the head. Whatever the head in your family is, it has to start with you. Because as a head, you get to set the culture of your family, the spiritual health of your family. And if you're not willing to say, I was wrong, if you're not willing to say, I forgive you, if you're not willing to reconcile, to take the first step, I don't, I don't know. But it starts with you. This, like, this is the type of stuff that breaks generational curses. This is the type of stuff that, that, that get, takes away the excuses of, well, my dad was this way, so I'm this way. No, if you start saying, I forgive, I reconcile. If you start saying, 
Um, if you start praying openly and repent publicly, that's going to break some stuff in your, in your house, in your line, in your lineage. And the last thing goes right into it. Why was David able to reconcile and forgive quickly? Because he loved unconditionally. Unconditionally. No strings attached. No strings attached. His sons were still his sons. He loved them. He mourned when they were gone. Even the one, even Absalom, the one who tried to take his kingdom, slept with his concubines, raised an army against his father. He mourned him because he loved him. He loved him. Unconditionally. This is the same love that God has for us. And there's people in here today that need to feel the love of God. God loves you with a no strings attached love. So often that's counterculture. We live in a culture that says, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Oh, I, I'll, I love you if you support everything about me. I love you if you, if you think that, you know, like that's, that's not love. When you put conditions on love, it, 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 becomes, it becomes slavery. That's not love. Love is saying, I love you regardless of our differences because you're a person that God created. I love you because you exist regardless because God loves you. And the only way to love the way God wants us to love as a dad, as a mom, as a person is to first understand God's love for us. We can't love like this. We'll always have a caveat on it. We'll, there'll, there'll always be a string attached to our love. But the Bible says we love because God first loved us. God bankrupt heaven. He sent his son to earth to die for our sins in our place on a cross for the chance that we might choose to have a relationship with him. It wasn't even a sure bet. It was a chance God loves you that much. He died for the chance. No strings attached. He's not pressuring you into anything. He's not forcing you to make any decision. He's saying, here's the chance. Here's the chance. And so, lessons from biblical fatherhood. Our choices carry weight. Receive correction and humility and give it in love. Pray openly and repent publicly. Reconcile and forgive quickly and love unconditionally.